0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Malinowski Memorial Lecture for 2009. As many of you may know, this is the 50th anniversary of the first lecture, which was given by Edmund Leach in 1959, Rethinking Anthropology, which is probably, it has to be said, the most famous of all the Malinowski lecturers, and one that remains on your reading list, so I'm sure you've all read it. Um, Obviously... This lecture commemorates the name and the uh, work of Bronislaw Malinowski, who first arrived at the LSE in 1910 as a student, supervised by Seligman, carried out his famous fieldwork in the Trobriand Islands between 1915 and 1918, before he returned to London and published *Argonauts of the Western Pacific* in 1922. Malinowski began lecturing at the LSE in 1924 and became a professor in 1927. And in the years from then, until he left for America, he established the famous seminar which trained most of the next generation of, in fact, the first generation of modern social anthropologists. And, of course, there is a great deal of legend surrounding Malinowski and his seminar. But it's undoubtedly true that he, more than anybody else, created the discipline of modern social anthropology, and it was in this department, and it's something which we continue to commemorate, and it's something that we, as best we can, try to live up to. And this department has consistently insisted on the value of fieldwork. All the PhD students are required to do intensive fieldwork, and that uh, central contribution of fieldwork to the discipline has remained important for the anthropology which is done in this department. The Malinowski lecturer has always been selected from somebody who is nearer the beginning of their career rather than the end. Most honorary lecturers, as you know, are given it in their dotage, but the Malinowski lecturer is a rising star whose best is yet to come and I'm sure that Joshua Barker amply fits this bill. His first degree was from Trent University, Ontario, in 1991. He then took an MA at SOAS in 1992, and his PhD from Cornell University in 1999, where he was supervised by Benedict Anderson and James Siegel. Since 2001, he's been assistant and now associate professor at Toronto University and his fieldwork has been in Indonesia. Uh, first, uh, in uh, the urban environment, uh, particularly interested in crime and security, and Fenella tells me that he spent a great deal of time working with thugs and police, assuming that one can tell the difference between these two categories. <laughs> uh, and he belongs, therefore, to the small but growing select band of anthropologists who have now turned their attention to crime in the urban areas of various parts of the world. He has numerous publications. Uh, The book which reports on the fieldwork and which covers much the same material as today's lecture is forthcoming from Duke University Press and is called State of Fear Policing the Post-Colonial City. And one of his first articles was entitled also State of Fear, subtitled Controlling the Criminal Contagion in Suharto's New Order back in 1998. Joshua has also been working on information technology and that is one of his current research interests. He's shortly going back to Indonesia to do more work on that. Not long ago he published an article entitled Engineers and Political Dreams, Indonesia in the Satellite Age, which came out in current anthropology in 2005. Although I said that uh, crime in the city is uh, a new topic in the sense that it's become something on which quite a lot of anthropologists have turned their attention, it is, in another sense, a very old topic, one which preoccupied the uh, founding fathers of urban ethnography in Chicago in the 1920s, Some of you may know the most famous study of gangs in Chicago, published in 1926 by the aptly named Frederick Thrasher, which was entitled The Gang, a study of 1,313 gangs in Chicago. (laughs) It's a long time since I looked at this book. I seem to remember it has a great deal more statistics than qualitative data in it. And I don't know whether Joshua can match 1,313 gangs in Indonesia, but we will now find out. Joshua Barker.
1: Thank you for that very gracious introduction. I'd like to thank uh, the Chair of Anthropology, Chris Fuller, the entire department, faculty, and students for this invitation Uh, uh, to this annual event. I was uh, introduced to anthropology just up the street at SOAS. uh, And ever since then, um, the LSE has loomed very large in my imagination of the discipline. Um, And by coincidence, I also wrote my master's research paper on Malinowski, Um, but I will not present that to you now here. (laughs) So it really is a genuine honor, uh, and I feel humbled to be here. In her introduction to Inside and Outside the Law, the late Olivia Harris wrote that, I quote, the epicenter of the discipline of anthropology remains with social groups who are defined as marginal by the mainstream society, groups like peasants, squatters, nomads, mafia, the informal sector, and migrants. In relation to the law, particularly, she observed, anthropology characteristically chooses as its field of study those who are at the frontiers of legality. And anthropologists seem to have a constitutional affinity for those whose relationship with the law is at best ambivalent. Well phrased as an observation, I choose to read this here as an invitation. In my paper today, I will provide an ethnographic examination of one particular frontier of legality in Indonesia, where moral and pragmatic ambiguities are indeed rampant. My paper focuses on the point of intersection between what Indonesians refer to as the Mafia Pangadilan, or the Court Mafia, and the Mafia Pertanahan, or Land Mafia. The Court Mafia refers to the networks of people who are involved in legally ambiguous and often corrupt manipulations of legal outcomes at courts throughout Indonesia. This, the land mafia, refers to the networks of people who are involved in the acquisition of land through the falsification of documents related to land tenure. The people I will describe are people I met in the city of Bandung. I met a large metropolitan center not too far from Jakarta. Um, and this is a map of Indonesia and you can see uh, Bangdung right there. So the greater area has about 7 million people now. And there is a satellite image. Uh, it's, it's, on, it's, in a, it's on a plateau uh, just under a volcano. The people that I'm going to be talking about were, were part of a loose network of people involved in land disputes that included officials, <laughs> business people, lawyers, brokers, and toughs the people I will discuss here were not officials and they were explicitly critical of the so-called court and land mafias. But as people involved intimately in land disputes, they had experience in the mechanics of how these disputes unfold. One of my aims in this paper is to better understand the role played by land disputes in the broader urban transformation of Bandung. Bandung, like other large metropolitan centers in Indonesia and elsewhere, is undergoing rapid change in its socio-spatial organization. An important part of this change is the consolidation of land holdings in the hands of large landowners and developers who have the capital and the ambition to build large-scale projects, such as housing complexes, vertical condominiums, office towers, hotels, and malls. These projects are leading to what some scholars call, scholars call urban enclosure, the process whereby spaces of consumption, work, and residence become enclosed within privately owned, managed, and policed spaces. And here's an example uh, of uh, uh, what's called the Bandung Super Mall, um, which is located in, the, in South Bandung. And it's not a very clear image, but all this area is uh, 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 low cost uh, poor housing. Um, and this thing, uh, they just built, it looks like an airport actually. Um, and they just carved out space uh, where people uh, had been living and it's uh, walled in and there's a security perimeter with security guards. Teresa Caldera calls such spaces fortified enclaves and argues that they are an important and ominous development because they fragment urban social space and displace the kind of public space that affords encounters between people of different social classes. While I'm cautious about making assumptions about the characteristics of a more authentic public space, I share Caldera's concerns. My second aim in this paper is to highlight some of the features of an ethnographic method that I believe is on the way to becoming a staple of interpretive anthropology after the long drawn out demise of the bounded culture concept. The method is what Johan Lindquist and I in a recent paper that just appeared uh, yesterday in the journal Indonesia, call the key figures approach. In a manner somewhat analogous to Raymond Williams analysis of keywords, a key figures approach focuses on a character or cluster of characters that is taken to represent, express or mediate some important or underlying feature of social uh, and cultural life. My initial interest in the use of figures to analyze and interpret social life came from considering how Walter Benjamin in his notes for the arcades project zeroed in on the figure of the flaneur as a means to better understand the shifts in subjectivity that occurred as the modern metropolis became saturated by the commodity form. But the use of K figures as an analytic tool is also evident in anthropology. Philippe Bourgeois, for example, analyzes the crack dealer Kam Hibaro in Harlem as a way to shed light on how New York's transition to a global city restructured race, gender, and class relations among a Puerto Rican minority. Philippe de Book has examined the figure of the witch child in Kinshasa, whose appearance, he argues, is symptomatic of a crisis in the logic of gift-giving and cycles of reciprocity that underpin the social field in that city. And James Siegel has shown how the figure of the maling, or thief, in Solo City serves as a special kind of other that does not respond to Javanese language and who defines the limits of what it means to be Javanese. The notion of key figure I will use here highlights some of the same conceptual themes that sociologists have identified when following the tradition of George Simmel, they have analyzed social types. As with a social type, a figure incorporates within it a tension between the individual understood empirically as a particular individual and the individual understood epistemically as a category of person that circulates in discourse and through which people make sense of their social world. Sometimes the discourses of types remain local, but they may also circulate nationally or globally, where they intersect with and are inflected by other discourses that focus on related figures. As these discourses circulate, empirical individuals may come to be recognized and come to recognize themselves, or at least imagine themselves being recognized, as examples of social types. The notion of figure goes beyond type, however, in in that it highlights the way in which a person becomes, as the OED describes it, quote, an object of mental contemplation that leaves an impression of specified character on the beholder. A figure in this sense is someone who appears larger than life, perhaps because they embody, stand in for, and give outline to the force of a meaning, a psychological reality, or social reality that is difficult or impossible to conceptualize directly. The figures I will discuss today all left this sort of impression on me. They are empirical individuals, but they are people who to some degree were caught up in and constituted by local and national discourses. In this this case, discourses about marginal social types. At least one of the types I will consider has also been caught up in a transnational academic discourse about urban marginality, and I offer this paper partly as a contribution to this conversation. Loic Wacom has has rightly reminded reminded us in an implicit critique of Mike Davis and others that what he calls urban outcasts and their marginalized, stigmatized places like the slum and the favela have divergent social and spatial histories. He has also shown that state policies have played an important role in constituting these outcast zones. But what he does not adequately address is the force that the urban marginal does have. A force that I think is, first of all, symbolic, but which, as I hope to demonstrate, also may have real political and socio spatial consequences. I first met Andy, Bobby, and Prabto, and these are not their real names, a little over 12 years ago. At the time, I was conducting field work at Bandung's courthouse. The court was a lively place in those days. Starting early in the morning, groups of people would gather in the parking lot and in the entranceway to the building. There were the family and friends of suspects and victims. There were witnesses, court officials, journalists from the city papers, small-time lawyers, and people selling snacks and cigarettes. I met Bobby during the trial of two men charged with forging multiple land certificates for an empty plot of land on a road that was one of the main gateways for traffic to and from Jakarta. One of the the accused worked for the government land registry, so the case had the whiff of corruption, and all the benches in the courtroom were full. Bobby immediately stood out to me, From the rest of the crowd partly because of his large muscular build and partly because he wore lots of jewelry and tinted glasses and in indonesia especially if men are wearing uh, rings you you associate that with some sort of magic when i approached him to talk he was extremely gruff barking out responses to my questions in what seemed like an angry voice but his manner was belied somewhat by his willingness to talk he explained to me that if i wanted to learn about how justice works in indonesia then he would introduce me to his boss, Andy, one of the people involved in the case we were watching. He told me to come around to Andy's house at 7.30 a.m. the next morning, which is what I did. Andy lived in a neighborhood in the far north of the city. In Bandung, to live in the north still carries with it a tinge of colonial privilege. During colonial times, the city was divided starkly between north and south where the northern hilly areas were predominantly European and the southern plateau was predominantly indigenous. And so the city was bisected by a railway track and by uh, the the Trans-Java Highway. In the middle of the town was a commercial hub with a train station, a large market, hotels, and shops. This is where most of the Chinese minority lived, as well as a small Arab minority, a growing Indo-European population, some Sundanese nobles, and some poorer Europeans. The socio-spatial structure of the city followed closely John Furnival's image of the colonial plural society, in which groups are divided along ethnic lines and meet only in the marketplace. In Bandung, this divide was also a pronounced economic divide. In the south, homes were made out of bilik, or bamboo, and wood, and arranged along walking paths in kampungs. Uh, and kampungs are a very specific kind of urban formation, uh, which are, they're like villages within the city. They have a little bit of uh, socioeconomic diversity, um, uh, and they're not merely places of residence. They're also places of work, and there's uh, little shops and cafes and and restaurants and so on uh, in them. Uh, In the north of the city, there were large rambling homes and villas on wide asphalt roads. Although Andy's house was new, it was built in the Dutch style, with a large yard and a view overlooking part of the city. It turned out that I was not the only visitor that morning. There were several other people already in line to see him. I learned that every morning, including most weekends, Andy would hold court on his patio or in a small receiving room in his house before the workday began. Over the next several weeks, I went there regularly, sometimes talking to Andy himself, in between the other visitors, but more often talking to Bobby and another of Andy's employees, Prapto. Once in a while, Andy would invite me to join him as he went on about his daily business. Sometimes I would also visit Prapto and his wife in their home, which was a modest wooden structure built on the very same parcel of land that was at the center of the corruption trial I was attending. Both Andy on the one hand and Prapto and Bobby on the other are recognizable figures in Bandung. They are recognizable not so much because they are individually famous, although both Andy and Prabto have on occasion been mentioned in local newspapers, but because they are examples of known social types that circulate in local discourses. The orangaya, or rich person, and the jeger, or tough. The significance of these three men's collaboration in land development requires a better understanding of what these types are, what they represent, and how they have changed over time. Andy cut an interesting figure he wore casual clothes he drove a nondescript car and he did not come across as being arrogant he claimed to have (laughs) to have three academic degrees at the time he was in the midst of studying for his fourth, a law degree by the standards of Bandung at the time Andy was also something of a tycoon He took me to visit one garment factory he owned and he reportedly owned several others as well as a bank, a law firm, and part of a private educational institution. By his own account, one of his homes had a subterranean vault with a collection of Ming dynasty antiques worth half a million dollars, which might well have been true. While Andy claimed he was first and foremost an industrialist, Bobby and Prapto told me he was also one of the largest, if not the largest. Uh, in their words, private landowner in Bandung at the time. Andy was what most people in Bandung would refer to (coughs) as rich. The figure of the rich person is a peculiar one in Bandung for it can evoke a sense of intimacy as well as a sense of distance. Many kampungs have a rich person they can call their own. Sundanese novels from the 1920s, and Sundanese is the ethnic group that predominates in Western Java, Sundanese novels, as well as some histories of West Java, describe a type known as Haji, a relatively large landowner who was wealthy enough to have gone on the Hajj pilgrimage. Such figures were sometimes respected and sometimes reviled. Between the 1950s and the 1970s, the local rich person was more likely to have made his fortune as a construction contractor, helping to build out the growing city. And more recently, he might be a bureaucrat or a military official who had shared some of the spoils of Suharto's corrupt authoritarian regime. Rich types like this usually maintained close ties to their villages of origin and were tightly integrated into urban patrimonial networks. Andy could not partake fully in the patrimonial intimacy and territorial belonging afforded to these other types because as a member of the Chinese minority, he was situated on the other side of an ethnic divide. The colonial government allowed what they called the Chinese And every time I use that term uh, in this uh, paper, please uh, put inverted commas around it. Um, uh, The colonial government allowed Chinese to settle in Bandung only late in the 19th century. The minority grew rapidly and by 1940, Chinese constituted about 11% of the municipal population, only a slightly smaller proportion than Europeans. I think that's my last statistic. According to one of Andy's brothers, Andy's parents had arrived in Bandung from China before the war. Initially, they had made a very modest living selling textiles in rural areas. But during the Japanese occupation, Andy's father managed to become one of the main suppliers of blankets and other goods to the Japanese forces in Bandung. By the time Indonesia achieved its independence in 1950, he was already a rich man. And when he died, he passed on a considerable fortune to his children. Andy's Bandung was not quite the divided city of his father's era, but there remained a strong current of racism. As James Siegel has shown, discourses about the Chinese in Java cities have often portrayed them as figures of wealth and consumer desire that indigenous Indonesians cannot be or ought not be party to. Anti-Chinese racism has thus been bound up with an ambivalent attitude toward capitalism, especially consumer capitalism. In Bandung, such racism was strongly evident in 1963 when students on the campus of the Bandung Institute of Technology, not far from where Andy lived, destroyed cars and motorcycles owned by Chinese Indonesian students. This precipitated a new policy that set quotas on the number of Chinese Indonesians allowed into this elite institution. In 1973, in what was known as the 5th of August affair, Three young Chinese men driving a VW in the center of the city had an altercation with the driver of a bullock cart, and rumors spread that the cart driver had been killed. In the riot that ensued, few Chinese were reported hurt, but many Chinese shops, factories, and automobiles were destroyed, and the contents of many Chinese homes were pulled out into the street and burned. Since then, there have been smaller anti-Chinese riots uh, in Bandung too, although uh, the famous riots uh, of 1998 that John Seidel has written about, um, Bandung was not terribly affected. As a result of these experiences, even middle-class Chinese homes in Bandung have been heavily fortified with walls, barbed wire, and trellises. Andy's home was no exception. It had high walls, barbed wire, a private security guard, and an alarm system. Inside the home, bedrooms were accessible only with card keys. This kind of cocooning of the rich person's world is now becoming the norm in Indonesia, not just for the Indonesian minority, but also for the so-called Orangkaya Baru, or the nouveau riche. The most important part of Andy's security system, however, was his hired toughs, Bobby and Prabto. Bobby and Prabto referred to each other as "Go Boy," cowboys. Others in Bandung might refer to them by other names, such as Jager, Jawara, Jago, the fighting cock that Clifford Geertz writes about, um, or by the now heavily stigmatized term, Preman. All these terms refer to the figure of a tough who has a reputation for fighting prowess and mystical powers, particularly the power of invulnerability. Often such figures have been associated with illegality. In colonial times, the tough was primarily a rural figure. Hank Skult Northolt has written about the role of the tough in the region of Kadiri, central Java, during the late 19th century. He shows that networks of Tufts operated a kind of shadow state that served as the strong arm of village administration. Village heads would make an arrangement with a Tuft, allowing him to settle in the village and giving him exemption from taxation in return for his protection. And a portion of the booty he received from cattle rustling and other kinds of banditry. Each village was forced, for its own protection, to have its own tough, and many of these toughs knew each other by name and reputation and even shared certain rituals. According to the historian James Rush, 19th century Chinese tycoons involved in the opium trade also frequently employed toughs to interface with village society, the police, and the courts. The general population viewed these men, he says, with fear, suspicion, and awe, as both heroes and villains. For the owners of opium farms, Tufts provided access to Java's criminal underworld and its legal system, and they could be used to advance the interests of a farm's patronage networks. Rush gives the example of Tufts, who would arrange for trumped up charges to be brought against villagers in order to discipline laborers or undermine the interests of a competing firm. Farm, I should say. The tough first emerged as an urban figure during the Indonesian Revolution. John Smale, writing about the revolutionary struggles in Bandung that followed the defeat of Japan in World War II, described how the vacuum of state power in the city after Japan's surrender was quickly filled by the emergence of Jago republics in Bandung's kampungs. kampungs. These miniature zones of autonomy and sovereignty provided local inhabitants with some degree of protection from other Jago republics and from the interventions of both the Japanese and allied powers. In some cases, where the zone of sovereignty included warehouses, shops, factories, or markets, they also provided tough guys with control over valuable economic goods and resources. My research, which I presented here last year, in one particularly rough kampung, suggests that after the war, Tufts in Bandung laid claim to particular kampungs and particular co- commercial spaces like cinemas and markets. Other researchers have found a similar pattern in other Indonesian cities. In rough parts of Jakarta like Abang, the most well-known Tufts during the 1950s and 1960s were men who had participated in the Revolutionary War but who had not gone to, on to join the army. These men would settle in a neighborhood and fight one another in order to determine who would be the leader of the gang. Sometimes these displays of competitive fighting would be held in the street, but sometimes they became institutionalized. In Bandung, for instance, the post-war period saw the appearance of several schools that offered training in martial arts, boxing, and wrestling. These schools, headed by Tufts with proven fighting abilities, staged competitions and served as recruiting grounds for new followers. Some of the more famous ones Uh, Became known citywide. During the three decades of Suharto's rule between 1966 and 1998, Tufts had a complicated relationship with the authoritarian state. They were locally powerful figures, and in Bandung, they were the familiar face of protection rackets and illegal businesses like gambling. Every cinema market and and bus terminal was owned by a Jager gang, and after the anti-Chinese riots in 1973, some gangs also began extorting money from Chinese shopkeepers. The police and the army relied on local toughs for intelligence and for kickbacks, and the ruling party recruited them into social organizations and used them to help help win elections. At the same time, as James Siegel has argued, they also came to serve discursively particularly in the press, as a kind of stand-in for the political force that had once been claimed by the people, a force associated with the street and the slum, and one that had been silenced by Suharto's repressive regime. During the 1980s, Suharto signaled his power over this force by having paramilitary death squads hunt down, kill, and publicly display the corpses of thousands of these toughs. These killings, known as the mysterious killings, because Initially, they were not, it wasn't known who was behind them uh, continued at a lower level into the 1990s. Like many post-colonial tufts, Bobby and Prapto were the sons of soldiers, in their case, Royal Dutch East Indies soldiers rather than Indonesian soldiers. Both were born just before the war, in Vandong. Bobby's parents were from Ambon and Prapto's from Java. Prapto said that he had grown up watching Errol Flynn and James Dean movies and had always wanted to be a gangster like Al Capone. He was eventually convicted for armed robbery following, he claimed, a number of spectacular heists of banks and jewelers. Bobby never told me why he was sent to jail, but implied that he too was in for armed robbery, or perhaps murder. Released from prison in the early 1980s, both men would have had few employment options available to them. Government regulations made it virtually impossible to get formal work with a criminal record. And both men expressed fears about falling victim to the blacklists, to the mysterious killings. By the 1990s, with a few exceptions, only small-time tufts and members of regime-affiliated social organizations were still active at the neighborhood level in Bandung, and the army and the police had taken over most local protection rackets. Like many independently minded tufts in their generation. Bavi and Prabto thus ended up selling their services to a tycoon with close ties to the army and the police. Besides an income, this work also afforded them some degree of protection. In some then, the Chinese tycoon and the tough are two very different figures of urban marginality, yet historically they are closely intertwined. A Chinese tycoon is a figure one might not normally associate with marginality given his extreme wealth. Yet structurally in Indonesia, the Chinese have been marginal. In the colonial period, they occupied a liminal position in the cityscape, and in post-colonial Indonesia, they have been subjected to periodic violence and discrimination that denies them a sense of spatial and national belonging. The Chinese tycoon in particular is also viewed as ethically marginal, since he is associated with unchecked desires and unrestrained consumption, characteristics that do not conform to a culture that, as Geertz pointed out long ago, prizes self-restraint and impassiveness. The tough is more recognizably marginal, a variation of an urban marginal type everywhere, the hoodlum, the gangbanger, Derrida's sovereign rogue, and so on. In Indonesian cities, the tough built authority territorially, magically, and physically, but by the 1990s had been driven from his territories, placed in a position of mortal threat, and forced into informal work. These are not the normal figures of the precariat, but they both clearly live in a condition of forced precariousness. Yet strangely, when we consider their role in land development, their very marginality gives them a real force. Now I'm gonna discuss the land cases. While I was unaware of it at the time, the period when I met Andy, Bobby, and Prapto, was the beginning of a watershed moment in Bandung's history. As the city was beginning to stratify in new ways, changes in the global division of labor and Bandung's gradual integration into a broader megacity encompassing Jakarta and surrounding cities would lead to an explosion of development in Bandung geared towards servicing the consumption and residential needs of the emergent megacity's sizable middle and upper class. Prior to the 1990s, it was possible to tell the story of Bandung's development as a story of a transition from an ethic- ethnically divided colonial town into a large heterogeneous industrial metropolis. To some degree, this transition is indeed still underway, particularly in the southern regions of the city. But in the north and west Bandung, consumer capitalism is the order of the day. This is evident in the changing cityscape where old colonial homes are being transformed into factory outlet stores, giant malls are being built where slums used to be, new housing complexes are taking over agricultural land, upscale cafes are being built on the mountainside, and new roads and bridges are being built to service all the new visitors, residents, and consumers. Here is the same mall seen from outside. And this is a large uh, bridge that joins East and West Bandung over uh, poor slums um, and was the subject of a big uh, public land dispute. <coughs> All these changes entail major social dislocations as land and structures are put to new uses and and middle class and poor residents are pushed to the city's edges and into its densely populated interstitial campings. Bobby's, Prapto's, and Andy's activities were symptomatic of these changes. Andy was in the process of transforming himself from an industrialist into a lawyer and real estate magnate. And as the real estate sector began to boom and land speculation became common, he was inserting himself into the murky and possible lucrative, possibly lucrative world of land disputes. Land disputes are rife all over Indonesia and Bandung is no exception. The most reported on and most studied kinds of disputes are those where the government appropriates large parcels of land for public use sometimes by force. And uh, a Dutch scholar, Gustav Rierink, has actually studied the process of taking land to build this bridge. It's an example of that type. But there is a whole other realm of land disputes that is much less public because it usually affects individuals and families rather than whole communities. These were the kinds of disputes Andy, Prapto, and Bobby were involved in. According to Andy, the disputes he handled had a variety of origins. Many could be traced back to the shadowy dealings of the Lura. The Lura is a low level government official in charge of a given village or neighborhood and historically, he was the person responsible for documenting land holdings and transactions. He was not chosen by the government but was put forward by the people, which meant, according to Andy, that he was either smart, rich, or a jagger. The Lura altered certificates for unoccupied property by rubbing out names and putting in new ones and by tearing out pages in his land register and putting in new ones. In the old days, Andy explained, land holdings were often dispersed, uh, partly due to Sweden agriculture. On the death of parents, children would often not, not know where it was that their parents held land, but maybe after some years, they would hear stories about land their parents once held. Upon investigating it at the Lura, however, they would find that their parents' land had switched ownership just prior to their parents' death, conveniently. There were other kinds of cases too. Dutch residents, when they died or returned to the Netherlands, sometimes left land to their servants or who knew little about certificates, and someone who did, did know about such documents would, like, would take advantage of them. In 1961, land reform legislation responding to demands by the Indonesian Communist Party limited the number of hectares an individual could own to five. To get around these restrictions, many people distributed legal ownership to family members And this, too, later led to disputes. During the time I was with Andy, I also observed two cases based on inheritance claims. In each case, a secret second wife or a widow of a government official laid claim to a portion of her dead husband's holdings. Uh, During the Suharto regime, you weren't allowed to have two wives and be an official. So people did it uh, under the table. Finally, there have been a surprising number of cases where due to the activities of the land mafia, multiple certificates exist for the same plot of land. Consider, for example, the case where I first met Bobby, which involved the land Pravto was then living on, together with his wife. According to Andy, that was a case in which multiple certificates existed for the same plot of land. Some of the certificates were false in every respect, other than the fact that they were printed on official registry forms, while others were so-called aspal, asli palsu authentic but fake uh, certificates. Uh, Authentic certificates issued on the basis of other falsified documents. Since the falsification of the prior documents had taken place in 1972, some of the ASPIL certificates had had been bought and sold several times before Andy brought his case. One can see how extremely murky this business can become. All this murkiness means that there are large numbers of people who feel they have been cheated out of land that is rightfully theirs. However, most people do not have the financial means or legal knowledge to pursue their cases in court. And as Gustav Rierenk has documented, there are few NGOs who deal with land disputes, even large-scale ones. So for the most part, these cases fester and remain unsolved. In Bandung, the politics of land disputes has not been terribly (laughs) explosive but any given neighborhood, and particularly in areas with lots of development, there are bound to be plots of land that locals recognize as tanah senketa, disputed land. It is in these circumstances that a, a case buyer like Andy comes into his own. What does it mean to buy a land case? As I explained earlier, each morning at Andy's mansion there were a stream of guests, these were chalos, or middlemen, who were putting forward potential cases for Andy to take on. During the time that I observed this process, most of these middlemen were pensioned police or army types, and some were lawyers. From a local standpoint, what one needs to imagine is that virtually every neighborhood in the city would have had one or perhaps several chalos who would be keeping their eyes and ears out for possible cases. Small-time chalos might, have, might only have relationships with other chalos, but successful ones would have have cultivated relationships with particular land buyers and case buyers. They would probably have more than one case buyer they could offer a given case to, and over time they would learn what kinds of plots of land particular buyers might be interested in. It was well known, for example, that Andy would only consider cases involving land that had, had street access. He would inspect the certificate, and if he thought the case might be worth taking on, He would dispatch Bobby or Prabto to to survey the land, sometimes bringing a video recorder with them. He would then examine the video and all the available documents for the land. He would only make his decision about whether to buy the case or not after he had visited the land personally. Andy purchased cases under a variety of arrangements. Sometimes he would simply buy the certificate for the disputed land outright, but at a discounted price. In other cases he would agree to take on the case and he would cover all the costs of taking it through the courts. And in return, assuming he won the case, he would get a portion of the land. Not all clients were comfortable with this kind of arrangement. One case I observed involved a family of six from a poor background who had been introduced to Andy through a lawyer who served as the Chalo. They met in the office of a notary public so they could sign an agreement to let Andy handle the case. The mother of the family was outspoken. She was worried that there wasn't anything in the agreement that forced Andy to go through with the case, bearing all the expenses. Andy explained to me later that there are many case buyers who take on clients and then don't do anything, and others who are bought off by rival clients. Andy reassured her by saying that it was in his interest to continue the case regardless. Once he has put out money, he wants to get it back, he said. He also spoke of his reputation, telling her that she could ask anyone if he had ever backed out of a case and they would say he hadn't. In the end, the family signed. In the agreement, if they won the case, Andy would get 50% of the land, the lawyer would get 10% and the family would get 40%. As the three men described it to me, once Andy had a land certificate in hand, he would seek to have his claim recognized as the only legitimate one and to take physical possession of the property. If the disputed land was not presently occupied, he would immediately have Bobby or Prapto take it over. If it was occupied, he would negotiate with the police to write up the case and submit it to the prosecutor's office. In these kinds of negotiations, outcomes could never be certain. As Andy put it, you can give the police 10 or 20 million rupiah to make sure the case gets submitted to court. But if your competitor gives them 50 million not to submit the case, then there's nothing you can do unless you have connections high up in the police force. So then, if the case doesn't get submitted, pressure will come down from up high. Also, one can emphasize to the police that they have a choice, sleeping soundly with 20 million because they have done the right thing, or sleeping uneasily with 50 million because they have suppressed a legitimate case. If successful, Andy would then approach a prosecutor and a judge with the case to see if they would side with him and to work out how much he would need to pay them to do so. Once he had lined up support for his case, he would pay to ensure that the head judge of the court, who was responsible for allocating cases to particular judges, gave the, ca- the case to Andy's preferred judge. If he succeeded in getting a court order, Bobby and Prapto would create a team to take possession of the property, consisting of members from the local police precinct uh, of wherever the land was, the local army base, the municipal police responsible for public order, and the military police. According to Bobby, each of these groups had a specific role. The public order police had the rightful authority to confiscate property and clear people from the land. The soldiers and police were there because they were the ones with local powers, and they would know any members of the police force, any army people, or any toughs in the vicinity who might fight back. The military police were there to threaten or arrest anyone from the army who resisted. According to Bobby people in Bandung would not leave a piece of land just on the basis of the law. They had to be pushed off, and they needed to be presented with a rental in which to stay, usually for a period of two years. During an eviction, Andy himself would stay a distance away and monitor the situation by mobile phone. Only when the property had been completely cleared would Andy come to the site. He would then immediately arrange for a temporary building to be constructed, and for Bobby, Prabto, or someone else, to physically occupy the site as a resident would. Without such occupation, the former residents might return or others might lay claim to it. One of the most striking things about their account of this process is the stark separation between what happens in the courts and what happens on the ground. This is reflected in the division of labor. Andy, acting as a Chinese tycoon and therefore representing the force of the market and unrestrained consumption, transforms the court into a marketplace where decisions are haggled over, bought, and sold. And Bobby and Prapto, acting as powerful toughs and representing a roguish force of law unto themselves, transform the police and the army into their underlings and occupy the land as their own. Their respective capacities to achieve these transformations depend not just on money and muscle, but on the symbolic power derived from their marginal status having been constituted discursively as vessels for the transformative powers of capital and lawmaking violence, these figures had an ample supply of this power to draw upon, despite the fact that they were structurally so precarious. And I should note now that the research here was done in the mid 1990s, which is just, you know, Suharto was ousted in 1998. And uh, those last few years, um, the regime was really in the business of ginning up anti-Chinese and, and anti-tough sentiment. So the gap between the power that these people uh, were supposedly had and their real structural precariousness was particularly pronounced. The combined power of Chinese capital and tough violence did have demonstrable effects on the social organization of Bandung's cityscape. Two cases illustrate the kinds of effects their activities have had. In one case, a plot of land he owned in the north of the city, uh, Andy owned, uh, has been transformed into a combined luxury condominium tower with a large adjacent middle-class restaurant. The building is the only skyscraper in its area, and opponents of the development argued that it violates restrictions on building height, but the project went went ahead anyway. Interestingly, when the the restaurant had its soft opening prior to the construction of the tower, the only invitees were the entire company of officers from the local police precinct, together with their families. While this was an extreme example, practices like this are common in Bandung when new commercial spaces are opened. The presence of police cars and uniforms serves as a public sign that the new territory is protected, not just in the sense of it having having the security of a private fortified enclave, as Caldera has described, but also in the sense of it having a protector. It is a signal to youth groups and tufts, and perhaps even to the army, that the new space has a hired protector. The other case is the land that Prapto and his wife lived on. In that case, the outcome still remains unclear. The case has gone to the Supreme Court twice, and in the most recent case, brought to the court this past December, Andy was accused of conspiring with a government official to have property tax documents issued in his name. Opposing counsel also told reporters that Andy had ordered the illegal confiscation of property from the site, despite a prior judgment that seemed to side with his adversary. I don't know the details of this case, but it appears that some 12 years later, Andy continues to employ his two-pronged court and territorial strategy, but that the land has retained its status as Tana Senketa disputed land. In certain respects, the machinery I have described at the point of intersection between the court mafia and the land mafia could be said to resemble a shadow legal process that took place not in public courtrooms, but in Andy's front yard and in backroom meetings between Andy, prosecutors, and judges. Andy's ambition, one could argue, was that he could resolve cases prior to their being being publicly heard and that the public process would essentially be a sham. But the fact is that his ambitions were not always realized. It may be that there were good legal reasons for this, but in the minds of Andy, like many in Bandung at that time particularly, and even today to some degree, it was a problem of power. As Andy put it to me at the time while pointing to a white ashtray, now I ask you, what color is this? In Indonesia, if the president says this ashtray ashtray is black, it's not enough to say, hmm, and think about it before agreeing that it is black. One must immediately answer, it's black, pa, it's it's black, sir. Uh, This is the way one gets promoted. It's not enough to say it is black. You have to say it without thinking. (laughs) And when you say it, you should say it is even blacker than black. (laughs) That is the way it is with judges. The the ones who get selected to the Supreme Court are not the ones who tell the truth, but the ones who follow orders. In Indonesia, he said, the wrong can be made to be right, and the right can be made to be wrong. This last phrase, which happened to be very similar to lyrics from a mildly political song popular in Bandung at the time, captured the ambiguities of this legal frontier. When I suggested to Andy that some people might think he is part of the court mafia, he was quick to deny it. Mafia, he explained, are bad people, orang punjahat, who try to cheat people out of what is rightfully theirs. They take on cases with no legal basis and try to finish them with power and money. Andy claimed that he was careful to only pick cases for which he was convinced he could make a strong legal argument. He saw himself as upholding the law and being on the side of the people who are the victims of mafia and wouldn't otherwise have access to justice. This gesture to the urban poor is significant, for it captures the deep ethical ambiguity about this whole shadow process. On the one hand, the poor gain access to a legal process that would otherwise be out of their reach. And on an individual or familial level, they may gain some compensation, where otherwise they would get nothing. But on the other hand, within the process, they serve mainly as pawns in broader strategies of land accumulation. And ultimately, it is the difference between their level of compensation and the market value of the land that provides the income that sustains both the court mafia and further concentration of land holdings in the hands of people like Andy. By facilitating the accumulation of land in few hands and by bringing disputed land out of its liminal status and into the market, the land and court mafias serve to reinforce and accelerate the dynamics of Bandung's broader urban transformation. This can be seen quite clearly in cases where Andy's land investments are turned into a condominium tower, a restaurant, and the like. But we have also seen that cases may not be definitively resolved, either at the legal or at the physical level. And in these cases, the stalemate may serve to produce or reproduce liminal or interstitial urban spaces, where Tufts and others working in the informal sector may live and search for livelihoods. In the end, what Bobby had told me at the court was right. To get to know the justice system, it was important to talk to Andy. But ultimately, it was Prabto, the bank robber, who captured the pleasures that all three men, despite all their complaints about corruption and the like must have had at some level. He said, the justice system, it's like a wheel. If one bearing is broken, the whole wheel will seize up. It'll become mache. If there were no prosecutor, if there were no police, if there were no crime, the world just wouldn't be interesting. Dunia tida akan jadi rame. In this paper, I focused on two key figures, the tycoon and the tough, as a way of making sense of the role of the court mafia and land disputes in dynamics of urban change. It's surprising how much the relation of the tycoon and the tuft in Bandung in the 1990s resembles the relation between tycoons and tufts in 19th century rural Java. In both cases, tycoons used tufts as their agents within the complex structures of formal and informal authority that prevail at the local level. And in both cases, the tufts were also a locus of what Walter Benjamin would call a law-making violence that functioned with a certain degree of autonomy from legal structures. But there are also important differences. Andy was a very different figure from the opium tycoons of the 19th century and the, safes and the self-made urban tycoons of the 1950s to 1970s. He stood at the cusp of Bandung's transition from an industrial city to a city of consumption, both symbolizing this transition and helping to usher it in. Bobby and Prabto also differed from the tufts, tufts of the old days because of the threat of the mysterious shooters, <coughs> they had been driven out of the urban camp books that constituted their base of power between the 1950s and the 1970s. While acting the part of the tough, they lived a precarious existence and depended almost exclusively on the tycoon for their livelihood. While tough figures like these two men still capture the imagination of many Bandungers, they appear to me in retrospect to have been relics of bygone eras whose patch in the changing fabric of the city was being hemmed in on all sides. I don't know what happened to either of these men, whether they are now alive or dead, and if alive, where they have ended up. Andy, however, is easier to trace. He has been involved in several high-profile legal cases, not only as a lawyer, but as a suspect, too. In the newspaper reports I have seen, the journalists now refer to him, to him as or which means esteemed or senior lawyer. Bronislaw Malinowski is famous for having founded modern anthropology by giving it the field as its object of study. Some have argued that he did so in the first few pages of Argonauts of the Western Pacific by quietly transforming himself from a small E ethnographer to a capital E ethnographer by transforming himself from an empirical individual out in the Trobriand Islands into the figure of the ethnographer in the capital F field. In doing so, he simultaneously separated the ethnographer from the culture or society she studied and established the terms under which the tremendous force of alterity represented by non-Western cultures and civilizations in European thought at that time (coughs) and uh, and restrained and made uh, comprehensible that alterity. The figures I have focused on here today are Indonesian figures, but I began by noting that comparable marginal figures and types can be found in other cities around the world. Word of some of these, like the Mumbai Slumdog, have traveled far and entered into the circuits of global discourse and recognition. In my view, this reflects a growing awareness and interest in the force of global global urban marginality today. In today's world of megacities and mass mediations, Not just ethnographers, but everyone is trying to find ways to contain and make sense of the tremendous force of humanity that surrounds us in this globalized world. One of the ways we do so, and have done so for some time now, is by creating figures that serve to highlight and make comprehensible that which might otherwise overwhelm us. The literary critic, Neil Hertz, describes a scene in William Wordsworth's poem, The Prelude, where the poet is overwhelmed by the sheer quantity of faces in a London crowd, so much so that his capacity to give meaning to them fails, and he feels that he can no longer distinguish himself, the writer, from the crowd. But then his eyes alight on a beggar who carries a piece of paper on which is written key elements of his life story. For Wordsworth, argues Hertz, the figure of the beggar becomes the form that contains the force of the crowd and makes it possible again to interpret, and therefore to write. For those of us who do research in in an emerging world of crowds, where culture has become thoroughly unbounded, it is no wonder that we too, like the people we study, rely on figures to make sense of it all. Thank you.
0: Even before you referred to Slumdog Millionaire, it struck me that, unlike most of us who pass over the clause in the publisher's contract concerning the film rights, you might actually want to study that bit properly. Uh, this is an ethnography which you described with such vividness that it brought, I think, to all of us what it, the kind of material that you studied and the lives of the people that you investigated. And you did it with the kind of sophistication that uh, is a tribute to influence of Malinowski and the inspiration of Malinowski, so thank you very much indeed, Joshua. It's a curious tradition of the Malinowski lecturer that he does not have to answer any questions. Instead, we all go to the senior common room uh, for a drink. You're all invited to come with us. There is also a dinner going to be prepared in the senior dining room. So if you would kind of go through that to the senior common room at the back of the dining room where the drinks will be held. So please join us there uh, to celebrate with Joshua his excellent lecture. Thank you. <laughs>